listening to the Clear Creek Resources Podcast from Clear Creek Community Church, located in the Bay Area of Houston. Welcome everyone to the Clear Creek Resources Podcast. I'm Rachel and I'm here with our teaching pastor, Yancey Arrington. Yancey, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks for inviting me and uh, happy birthday, by the way. Oh, thanks so much. So we're in the middle of a series called Plot Twist, and we're talking about the sometimes surprising, always faithful and good ways that God steps into the stories of everyone. Uh, But we're looking at that through these biblical stories that you guys are preaching about. It's been so good. Um, But sometimes in the middle of these stories, people ask the question, where are the women? Whenever they just look at the Bible from the outside or when they're studying the Bible for themselves. And what I love about this series is we're actually highlighting a lot of women throughout it. I've already heard the series on Ruth and we have more coming and it's really exciting. But it does bring up that question that a lot of people have. Yeah. Uh, where are women within Christianity and the Bible? And so we're having a podcast conversation about that today, which I think is going to be really great. But a part of that conversation um, always brings up other questions, which is how does the church think about women? What are the roles of women within the church? How does God think about women, their gifts, their callings? And so, Yancy, you're a teaching pastor, but you also have thought about this topic a lot and you have led our church in it. So um, tell me just what are the questions that you typically hear come up within these conversations? And then uh, how does Clear Creek think about this from a biblical perspective? Now, that's so good, Rachel. Thanks for the opportunity, by the way. Here's what I would say. Every church... Uh, have distinctives, or all churches have distinctives about what they believe. I mean, distinctives that that are that that might set them apart from other churches where they would agree on the essentials. But there are some important, non-essentials, but important beliefs that <clears throat> that affect how people do ministry. So, for example, for Clear Creek, we hold the distinctives like we we believe in believers' baptism. We, we don't do infant baptism. Uh, we we believe in uh, focus on gospel centrality, on on missional living. We, we're a church for the unchurched. Those kinds of distinctives make us a little bit more of who we are. <clears throat> Another distinctive is that we are what's known as complementarian. Now that's a big fancy word, which means this: as best as and as honestly and sincerely as we come to the teaching of the Bible, what we believe the Bible teaches is that. Uh, we affirm that men and women are created equally in the image of God. Uh, they're, they're, they're co-regents or vice-regents, as the text teaches us in Genesis. And we also believe that the Bible teaches that God designed men and women to have complementary roles. That's where complementarianism comes. Complementary roles within marriage and the church, those two spheres. So think of you know marriage as the little family and church as the larger family. So... As it concerns uh, the home, the little family, uh, we believe that the Bible teaches that men are to be spiritual leaders of their of their homes. And as it concerns the church or the bigger family, we believe that the Bible teaches uh, that qualified men are to be the elders of a church, and elders are the highest level of leadership in a local church. Now, with that being said, I want our listeners to hear this. Uh, often, there is a form of complementarianism, or at least people who call it complementarianism, though some might argue it's something else. Uh, there's a form of complementarianism that can be misunderstood as denigrating women, or even worse, it can be misused to restrict women beyond the biblical commands. And so here, here's what we hope at Clear Creek. 
We hope to be as generous in our complementarity as the scriptures are. When people ask me, are, are we complementarian? I'm like, I'm yes. And we are, we are generous complementarians as much as we can be. So that's why outside of leadership at Clear Creek, excuse me, let me correct that. Outside of eldership, to be sure, to, outside of eldership at Clear Creek Community Church, we have women at all levels of ministry. We have women who teach classes. We have women who navigate small groups. We have women who lead in worship. We have women who serve in various and sundry capacities at Clear Creek. And we even have women who host podcasts like this one. So, uh, yeah, can you believe it? And so, yes. So we, we'd like to think outside of our eldership. And by the way, our, our eldership is just a small percentage, even of our men who get to be a part of that. So, um, I, I've just realized time and time again that that sometimes in the way church culture has gone throughout the last two, three, four, five hundred years, uh, that women seem to have had a marginalized voice in a lot of that. And that's why we want to make sure, hey, let's go back and look at the scriptures. What are the scriptures teaching? And let's be as broadly uh, complementarian as we believe the Bible teaches that to be. So, for example, recently, since I oversee the teaching and preaching ministry at Clear Creek, that's usually an elder job, right? But uh, we didn't really have a place where women could speak into some of the preaching and teaching just as a reflection because they have unique insights that uh, maybe a guy wouldn't have. And so uh, about a year or so ago, I helped form the women's advisory team where there's we have a collection of women who uh, and we're on pause because of COVID, but uh, before COVID and hopefully pretty soon from now, uh, we'll meet again and we'll talk about like, here's what we're teaching through. Here's what we're preaching. Uh, what do you ladies think? And I get uh, input from them. And I can tell you this. It's very refreshing because here's what I'm learning. I'm learning that um, while we are of the uh, same uh, ilk, if you will, being made in the image of God and God esteems us all and affirms us both, both men and women, uh, men and women are different. And uh, there are a lot of unique insights that women have that men miss out on and that I'm grateful that our women feel free to share in all kinds of capacities. And in fact, it kind of makes me think about our guest today. So like you've, you're interviewing um, a woman today who, who does the exact same thing, brings us some fresh insight into how to look at the Bible from a perspective that maybe doesn't get a lot of press. Is that right? Yeah, I think that that's right, which is why that we asked Dr. Sandra Glan, who is a professor of media arts and worship at Dallas Theological Seminary, to spend some time with us today talking. Along with teaching at seminary, Dr. Glan is also the author of over 20 books, and she writes Bible studies for women, which are just really wonderful. Not only is she a writer and a speaker and a teacher, but she's just really passionate about thinking biblically about gender and women. So, We hope that this conversation is just a gift to our church, that it's a blessing to you and furthers our desire to honor and utilize the gifts, passions, and ministry of women at Clear Creek. So I hope this conversation is as helpful for you guys as it was for me. Dr. Glan, thank you so much for joining us today. Totally my pleasure. Love the subject. So Dr. Glan, our church has been walking through a sermon series called Plot Twist. It focuses on different biblical characters and what they can teach us about who God is, God's story, and how each of these characters can lead us to Jesus in different ways. So when it comes to women in the Bible, most of us know the stories of Eve. We know who Mary is. And we actually just heard a really great sermon on Ruth. And I think we're going to hear more 
Uh, but sometimes from the outside looking in, the accusation can be that there are no women in the Christian story. You know, where are the women in the Bible? It's only Eve. It's only Mary. But that's not actually true. There's so many women that are part of this story. So who else can we learn from in the Bible? And why is it that we sometimes miss them? Great questions. I think there are lots of reasons we miss them. For one thing, we mostly live in the West in a literate culture, and we don't have to walk everywhere for water. (laughs) And so... Uh, even my even my husband's grandmother in her diary talked about her hopes and dreams for her daughter to someday be able to have enough leisure time to get an education. She was a farm woman. And it's a luxury to be able to sit and study. And when you are having to milk cows at the crack of dawn and, you know, harvest the eggs and grind your own wheat, they're just and and hand rinse your own diapers if there's enough water available. Like there are just so many services that we have. We're not having to chip ice to bury it underground to have a refrigeration center. We're not having to dry meat so that we'll have it in the winter. Um, And so there was just so much involved. And so we live in a different world. And it's hard for us to imagine our way back to a world where women's work is so tied up in just surviving that uh, so and that so that's part of it. Also, uh, in, you know, in the early Jewish roots, if you do have Torah teaching, your very first rabbi to take on a female student is Jesus. <laughs> You know, Mary's sitting at his feet. She's taking on the literal figure, you know, of of how a student sits at a rabbi's feet. And her sister says, hey, uh, she should be helping in the kitchen. And Jesus is basically, leave her alone. Um, She may not be doing the traditional female thing, but she was definitely doing something radical um, for women. And so the fact that you have women traveling with Jesus, supporting Jesus, inviting them to learn as a rabbi student, you know, rabbinical student, uh, he is pretty uh, revolutionary. And then when you even think about the veil being ripped in the temple, that's not just access for women, although it includes women. It, it's access for Gentiles. It's, it's access for outsiders. It's, it has a very equalizing effect. So we, I think, sometimes get the wrong idea from the Old Testament that since all males are priests, that that's God's design for humanity. But God's original design for Israel, he says, is that you would be a kingdom of priests. In the New Testament, we have the priesthood of all believers. In the kingdom talked about in Revelation, we are all priests to our God. Well, what does a priest do? A priest brings people to God, <laughs> offers sacrifices of praise to God. Um, all of us should be doing that. And so there's a big shift from reproduction physically to making disciples. Uh, and, you know, you've you got to populate the earth in the beginning. There, there, there just aren't that many people on the earth. But that focus on reproduction never gets uh, repeated in the New Testament. That's really interesting. And you see a shift of, oh, Jesus, bless are the breasts that suckled you. You know, they are really elevating what a woman does. And and he doesn't denigrate it. He just broadens it and says, who is my mother? Who are my sisters and brothers? They're the people that do the will of God. And so he's really not buying into this 
like family is everything, blood is stronger than spirit. Um, the, that, that whole metaphor of the church is the family of God, where we are brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers, uh, is really pretty radical. <laughs> We're used to it because we hear it all the time. Right. You know, church, we hear it all the time. But boy, his listeners, for him to have done that, it would have been almost disrespectful to his mother if you didn't understand. So, you know, I think in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we don't always understand exactly, you know, exa- what, what they're talking about, the language that they're using. What are some ways with some specific characters in the Bible that are women that we sometimes get it wrong, that we have used our cultural interpretations to maybe um, read into the stories ways that that's not actually what the Bible is saying. A great example of that is Tamar in Genesis. So Tamar, we read her story. We've been reading along about how Joseph gets sold by his brothers into Egypt. Judah is the one through whom Messiah is supposed to come, and he is just a rake. <laughs> and he goes down to pagan country and, you know, gets a gets Gentile wife for his sons. The sons are so evil, God knocks them off. <laughs> and we don't understand leveret law, which is if a husband dies without an heir, a male heir, then his brother takes her, even if he's already got a wife. His brother takes her as his wife, and the firstborn son is named for the deceased brother. So, and in the in so that's in the Bible Old Testament, but then in the cult, the broader culture, there was also understanding that and it, the father-in-law could do the job too. And it's interesting that the Genesis text mentions that Judah is widowed before you have Tamar posing as a prostitute because she knows what kind of guy he is because she is still showing loyal love to her dead husbands. I want to provide an heir so their names will not be forgotten, even though they were horrid people. And, you know, when when Judah finds out his daughter-in-law is pregnant, he wants an honor killing. And you're like, what? let's talk double standard here. Like, right. I can go to prostitutes all I want, but if you get pregnant, let's kill you. And when she basically shows him his ID card, he says, well, you're the righteous one, not I. The very next time we see Judah, he is offering his life in exchange for his stepbrother, Benjamin, who was the biological brother of the one he sold to Egypt. So Tamar is huge to Judah's character arc. And often when people are preaching through Genesis, they go, that's a sort of little story with a prostitute in it. And we skip right over it. And we miss that this is a righteous woman. She doesn't want to have sex with her father-in-law. No, she's doing it because. She's having a baby. She's yeah, and not just any baby. What what would she know after being in this family about the promises that are given to Judah and his progeny? It, it I think that's part of what it, he's saying. You're the white righteous one, not I. He hasn't given a rip over whether he has grandkids. You know, he's got now he's got a younger son. He hasn't even married off to her yet, and she realized he's not going to. It's not a priority for him to have children, and so it's not just that she wants a baby. She is showing loyal love to this family, even though they're wretched. And and when he realizes who she is and what she's done, he acknowledges that what she did was a righteous thing. So, Dr. Gon, tell me, when, when we're talking about these stories where we see sometimes, you know, a woman who's just a prostitute 
who wants a baby um, instead of someone who is showing loyal love and who is righteous in these stories. Why does that matter? You know, why do we have to think through the way that we're, we're interpreting these stories? So I can think of two right off the top of my head. One is that representation matters. If women think that the only examples in scripture of godly women are limited to the two you mentioned, and everybody else is like a rebel, or she's taking power when she shouldn't, or she's, you know, seducing her father-in-law, you know, Bathsheba is seducing a king instead of a king is abusing power. Like all of that affects how we view ourselves as women and how men view us as women. We get this idea that, that we, women cannot be trusted, they're corrupt, as if Judah wasn't utterly corrupt, right? Humanity is corrupt, Women don't have a corner on that market. So the goal is not to prove that men are corrupt. It's to say it's true, all humanity is. But these women are in the genealogy of Jesus, some of them. And we have said it's because they have sordid sexual histories. And that's not what's happening. These are utter examples of faithfulness. Even if they were Gentiles, they feared God. You've got Rahab, who, you know, has been a prostitute. The spies come. She risked her life to save them. And she is saying, I've heard about Yahweh, your God. Forty years ago, I heard about him parting the Red Sea. And now, you know, we got these two kings that went to attack Israel. And Israel took all their real estate. And Israel doesn't even have an army. Like, he is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Like, she's giving way more powerful testimony than those spies are giving. And then she ends up in the line of Christ. And it's true that God forgives sexual sin, but we could use Solomon as an example of that in the line of Christ or Judah as an example of that in the line of Christ. But I don't hear anybody saying that, right? We pick out the women when in their stories, they are examples of great faithfulness. So that's one thing. Representation matters. The other thing is, look at how that changes how we read Genesis. If we misunderstand what Tamar's doing, we think that's a bunny trail, you know, the, the writer got off topic for a little while to tell this weird sordid tale, tale that doesn't seem to fit with the whole. And we miss that what changes Judah and how Messiah comes to be <laughs> through the line of this faithful Gentile is because she did care about God's priorities. And when he was confronted with it, it changed his life to the point where he's willing to give his own life for his brother now, where in the past he sold a brother. Something dramatic happened, and she's the pivot point. And that tells us all kinds of things. It tells us we should be tracing the sovereign hand of God and how he redeemed us, because he promised through Judah a Messiah would come. And it wasn't because Judah's righteousness that led to that happening. It was actually a Gentile who was righteous in that story. It's also a warning to us. We have all this great teaching and good food, spiritually speaking. And often we are being shown up by people who have way less light than we do. And that is a constant theme in the Old Testament and New Testament. I think of Hagar, who gets thrown out by Sarah. And we don't acknowledge Sarah's abusive because we love Sarah, because she's the heroine. But we're not supposed to see her as flawless. Um, But what's happening with Hagar Hagar is, you know, dying of thirst and her son's going to die of thirst. And God speaks to her and you know, basically shows up. So we look at Hagar and God makes incredible promises to her and her son. And he basically says, you're going to have to go back to your abuser. But your son is going to be 
And we tend to translate it a wild donkey, which, excuse my French, but we read that as he's going to be a jackass. I mean, that's how we understand what God is saying. But back up again, let's understand the culture. Where do we see people riding donkeys? Well, let's see. Palm Sunday. (laughs) Um, When Solomon is coming to his coronation, he's riding a donkey. This is the BMW of the Middle East that is a sign of a prince coming in peace. So when when it says he will be a free stallion, that's more how they would have understood it. Okay, you, Hagar, are going back to slavery, but your son will always be free. He'll be a free prince. And then there are all these other great promises that we often skip over. But uh, Ishmael has some decent promises coming from God that God kept. I I just want to ask you, because I think you're talking a lot about historical context and the, the, the culture and also um, the, the biblical theology context as well with these promises that God has given for a king coming. So can if you were to tell someone, so when you're thinking through these hidden figures, these stories in scripture and how, how we view everyone in the Bible, what are just some tips that you would give people for how, how they're studying the Bible is going to affect how they're seeing these stories in the Bible and how it all connects together. So one big clue is, are they named? You have the Hebrew midwives and we have their names recorded. We should be looking at, these are people who risk their lives to value life. And uh, they're so important in the history. I I can't remember their names, right? But they're named and Hagar is named. And you have the daughters of, I think it's Zalepahed. They show up Five times in the Old Testament, I can't think of a time I've ever heard a sermon on their story. Well, if they're showing up a lot of times and they're all named, we need to look at that. The daughters of Job are all listed by name. And they were considered the fairest in all the land. And and you look at the end of Job and you say, why? Well, one of the things that you see there is God, you know, multiplies everything to Job, except he gets the same number of children that he started with. Um, and he is described as a righteous man because he gave real estate to his daughters. Okay, like they got an inheritance. He's na- the author is naming those women and making a point of their inheritance, which is very similar to what's happening to the daughters of Zelophehad. You have something which matters when you're reading. You're reading the Bible. The names the matter. Names matter. Yeah. In the same way that you and I might, if we watched a film that was produced by somebody we know. It would change how we watch the, watch the credits, okay? And so often we read the name people in the Bible go, hard name, hard name, skip, 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 instead of paying attention to, if most of the women are not named and all of a sudden I've got five women named here, I want to go back and look at that and go, why did the author track down their names? Um, you see the opposite happening in the book of Ruth. The one guy who is not going to marry her is literally in the Hebrew is the equivalent of Mr. So-and-so like out of the way to not give his name because he didn't do anything heroic. So that's one thing. I think another thing as we're reading the Bible is to see, look for this pattern of who's the outsider that the author goes out of his way to make sure this story is included. And that like the gospel is a great example of that would be like the Syrophoenician woman, the woman who's bent over the woman with the issue of blood. Like why are, there are so many women's stories, especially in Luke 
Um, and part of that is because Luke's emphasis is on the outsider showing outsiders are insiders if they have faith. Um, so I think it, it's part it's part of why we've got to read our Bibles. Just read our Bibles for one thing. If we're only getting a verse a day, or we're only getting a paragraph a day, we it's like you know I can't imagine reading John Grisham that way, right? And a lot of these history, especially the history sections and the law sections, you've got to read a bunch of it at one time to get any sense of the plot and the structure. So we need to read more. Yeah, the story. We need to read more. And if you're not a reader, get on Dwell or some kind of app that'll read it for you so you can listen to it. It was actually written to be read out loud anyway. Um, so that's that's part of it. Um, I think it really helps us also to be reading in community. And by that, I mean, uh, we can't travel much with COVID, but one of the gifts of COVID is we can Zoom with people that are not just like us. Um, and it doesn't have to necessarily be international, although that's certainly helped me. But I can think of Sharifa Stevens uh, is an author who, uh, in a book that I was a general editor for, Vindicating the Vixens, she did uh, a piece on Vashti, who is the queen who has no spoken words, but again, she's mentioned my name at the beginning of Esther. And basically, her husband calls her in. Uh, some of the some of the writings from Jewish writers from around that time uh, suggest that he called her in without clothes on to show her uh, to show off his wife. So all the guys look like she's mine, and she's not having it. And so she gets deposed, basically. And then Esther comes in, and Esther. This is where an African American reading really helped helped me see things I hadn't seen before. You know, the the African Americans in the in Jim Crow South at times had to do social passing. They were light-skinned, passed themselves off as white for their own protection, right? And so having that in your history and then looking at Esther going, she's passing. Like, how do you know she's Jewish? Well, there are all kinds of studies on what that does to you psychologically when you live not being known um, that really help us understand how deep the oppression was in Esther's life. We have, in our American cinema and the Hollywoodized, we've made that a romance. You know, you're the most beautiful one. Yeah. We need to not see it that way. We need to see this much more like a Jim Crow kind of situation where she's not safe. She doesn't feel safe. She's the least powerful woman in the room. And she's like, if I die, I die. Like, she really does think she's going to die. <laughs> um, that, that. It shows not only her courage, but it again shows God is going after the most powerless person in the story. Always. Like he, it's his, it's like, it's his favorite, right? Um, we need to be looking for that and see reading ourselves as the powerful, right? When God, when God is speaking about the Pharisees, I got as much scripture knowledge as they do, right? Uh, who am I silencing by, or by not using my power? Giving, it, giving away my power to benefit them by hearing the cries of the poor, by hearing the cries of the destitute, by hearing the cries of women or homeless or you know, who, whatever group is, is being marginalized. God seems to go out of his way to say, I'm going to show you my power because <laughs> you're powerless. So, you, you know, Gideon, you're the perfect example. You're hiding in a hole and this angel comes and says, oh, mighty warrior. Yeah, mighty warrior. Like the least mighty warrior in the room. It's like, well, you're going to be by the time I'm done with you. So you're, you're talking a lot about how 
Um, we, we see these people in the Bible and also what they can teach us about who we are. What about, how do we think about biblical womanhood? Because when I grew up in the church, you know, it was very much like, you need to be a P31 woman. And not that I knew what that meant, except for that I was supposed to be busy. Or if you're a guy, you need to be looking for P31. So that was sort of the ultimate example of what it means to be a biblical woman. So is that the right place to look? And if it is, are we thinking about it that the right way? That is a great question. I think the first place we need to look is in Genesis. We, we shouldn't start with P31 as our grid, although that's certainly scripture. We can talk about that in a minute. But in Genesis, when, when God makes humanity, it is not good for a man to be alone. And, we, and why we only apply that to the home? That should be in the seminary. That should be in the business world. Because what were they given to do? They were given two tasks that they couldn't do alone. One was to multiply and fill the earth. And one was to have dominion and rule. And we tend to, at times, say men were made to rule. Women were made to have babies. Like, that is not the vision in Genesis. <laughs> it wasn't just that it's not good for you to, have, to be alone because you can't have progeny. He was alone. He was lonely. He needed an indispensable companion. And so I think understanding how the word helper is used for God is my helper, same word. And that does not mean God is my assistant. <laughs> um, in, the, in the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew, they chose a word for helper that was often used in a hard surgical case when you call in a colleague with expertise in an area you don't have. And together, you do the case together, and your expertise joined together is more than one plus one. And so we have to start there. We have to look at women are image bearers. We are not like, you know, image bearers only in if we're married and or have children. And then, you know, then we image God because we're associated with a man. Well, I think that can like scare people sometimes because we're in this culture that wants to you know, there's gender dysphoria, there's this, you know, fluidity with gender. And so I think sometimes when people hear that there's more sameness between men and women, you know, being created as a dom in Genesis, they get uncomfortable because they think that you, that, that, that means that we're saying that there's no point to differences between yeah. genders. So I would think it argues the opposite. I think it actually argues for difference. The challenge is, we don't have to, to outline what does a woman bring to the table and what does a man bring? Because then we tend to get into stereotype. Well, men bring leadership and women bring nurturing, except we all know men who are more nurturing than other women, right? You know, than, than others who are women. And I don't think, I mean, you can look at Jesus, like he's, he's weeping and he's saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have held you to my breast, right? Um, that's nurturing. Uh, if we if we say that gentleness is a female quality, that that grieves the spirit because gentleness is a fruit of the spirit. So we have to really be careful that we don't buy into stereotype, but we also say God made male and female different, but it's a mystery exactly how that works itself out. All we know is we need it both. Uh, I don't want to see a marriage that's only men or only women. Like we we need diversity. Um, so I, I think people get scared too when you say that women were made to rule because they hear sort of a feminazi taking over the world. And that's where I think we have to come back constantly to partnership. So if you have a missions committee at your church and it has only men on it, like that's not complimentary. 
complimentary says we need men and women. If you have greeters at the door and they're all men, you need to go, no, we need men and women at the door. So if somebody feels uncomfortable with one or the other, they can just veer the other way. If you have an altar call, instead of saying the men or the elders will come forward, some men and women will, will be up here to talk with you. And that's the beauty of the design. And I think we have wrongly read some of the pastoral epistles and assumed that it's a failure of men if women are partnering with them in some of these other spheres. Instead of, no, this is an embrace of the image of God expressed more fully through male and females partnering together from the business world to the church to marriage to family. Like you need mothers and fathers. A church is full of mothers and fathers. So if our, if our, if our biblical womanhood starts in Genesis, and that's where we understand most, most fully who we are and what our, our design and our calling is, what does Proverbs 31 say to us? Because you said you wanted to go back there. I do. Thank you for reminding me. So we, Genesis 1 is the beginning, but it's not the ultimate ideal. The kingdom is the ultimate ideal. And, and I mentioned earlier, it's a kingdom of priests. And so on the way to the kingdom, we we have a, a stop at Proverbs 31. And I read something just today where somebody uh, was teaching that her whole focus is her husband. And I literally said out loud, no, her husband is at the end praising her. <laughs> but she is buying and selling real estate. She is buying and selling belts. She is stretching forth her hand to the needy, which means she's out in the community. She's not just at home. It's really hard to sell a field if you're, you know, inside the house. And also, it, but it doesn't, it's not that she minimizes her family. Her family loves her, but her whole world is not her family. Her world is, she is, it says the Torah of Hesed, of faithful, loyal love is on her tongue. So she's teaching as she goes. She's, as I said, she's in the marketplace. So when we were in Kenya, I got a really good picture of this in an agrarian culture. Uh, We were being shown around this compound by one of the pastors. And he's like, over here, that's the hen house and all the eggs. My wife set that up and sells them in the market. P31, basically, you know, godly woman is what he's saying. And over there is that fence. She built that fence so the sheep wouldn't get out. So now we have more sheep than we used to have. Good woman. And he literally like went all around the farm pointing to all her little industrial things that had added to the economics of the household. So the economics weren't all on him. In fact, the more she handled the economics of the household, the more he could be in the gate. The more he was actually freed up to do full-time ministry in the community because he wasn't thinking constantly about how to feed his family. And in his mind, that was Proverbs 31. If she earns more than me, God bless her. Like, not that it's a threat to my manhood, but that she is a good woman. So there's not a formula if you want to be a Proverbs 31 woman. One size does not offer at all. And my own journey was with infertility and pregnancy loss. I'm the fourth of five kids. I wanted to have lots of kids, wear Birkenstocks, have an herb garden. And I didn't even think women should go to seminary. That's where I started. But when I hit the brick wall of infertility, and then we had seven pregnancy losses and three failed adoptions, I had not just the medical and financial and marital and, you know, all that crisis, but I had a crisis of womanhood. Because in my biblical view of women, which was very much what you described at the beginning, there was no room for a woman who couldn't have children. She was worthless. Um, And all the more so if you don't get married. 
But that that is not what we're getting from Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, which the early church for sure thought, you know, better to be single than married. And you see that like in early orthodoxy in the Catholic church, which was, has led us to like priests and nuns, like they're deeply rooted in an early Christianity that, that elevated it. And the, the Reformation sought to correct some of that when it went too far, but then we went too far with the family. We need to see that in God's pattern book for family life and for thriving, there are lots of different options. There's lots of diversity still. There's tons of diversity. He specializes. Just look at the animal kingdom, right? I mean, the, the plant kingdom, he loves diversity. And all of us are walking stories of God's faithfulness, and it's not the same story. So you ta- you've talked about in the Old Testament, in, especially in the beginning, in Genesis, in Genesis 1, 26, 27. So you move to, to Proverbs 31, but you, you mentioned that we're moving to this kingdom mentality, in his kingdom view of womanhood. So what does what does that look like? What's the kingdom woman? So major changes happen at the crucifixion with the, the rending of the, the veil, which gives everybody access into the Holy of Holies. And then what happens after the resurrection? You've got the ascension, and then you have the coming of the Spirit the day of Pentecost. What is a sign of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost? That your old men, and your young men, and your old women, and your slaves, and your free, all of them are prophesying. They are all proclaiming the excellencies of God. And so they're speaking forth. And so that's our first hint of a kingdom that's something radically different, Gentile and Jew alike, male and female alike. And then you have uh, in the early church, we tend to camp out on, you know, what Paul's saying about head coverings. And I, you know, I've, a lot of my career has been exploring that. But we miss that in that same passage, he's saying they should wear head coverings. Why? Because they're going to be praying and prophesying when they pray and prophesy. And so then you come to Peter and you've got the priesthood of all believers, which again was a rallying cry for the Reformation. And so, and, and then in the kingdom, you see a reference to priests who are God. So the, the foretaste of the kingdom is that we are all gifted. We are all part of the body. We are all proclaiming the excellencies of God. And that's going to look different in different ways, in different cultures, in different bodies, in different settings. Um, for some of us, it might be helping. For others, it might be prophesying. Um, however you want to understand that. Prophecy is part of something that's happening in the New Testament. It's not just the men doing it. And so we have to, I think we have to look toward toward the kingdom. If we want to be giving these little previews of the kingdom, right? Like foretaste of glory divine. Like we still get these hints today, right? Like we have a really broken world, but we still like, like when I was in church Sunday morning at, for the first time in a year, <laughs> after COVID and everybody is singing about the resurrection at the top of our lungs through our masks. That was a foretaste of glory. Yeah. (laughs) Of a day when every tribe and nation will be worshiping him together. Like we get these little foretastes now. And I think that's part of our task as men and women is who can I be leading to God? Who can I be ushering to the throne? Who can I be interceding for? Who can I be serving? Who can I anonymously show up with for groceries? Who and who can I send a verse? Who, what brother or sister do I need to partner with? 
to help them develop their gifts? To whom can I give away power? To where can I do something anonymous? (laughs) And it's between God and me and we can smirk about it. Let me ask you, how is this? How is what it looks like in the kingdom for women and for men? How, How does that connect us back to Genesis 1 that you were talking about, this original design? Yeah. So the original design was that we rule the earth together. And a day is coming when the earth will be restored. We get this idea that we get raptured out of here and we just stay up in the ethereal clouds. That's not the story. There's a, there's a city that comes down from God and, and physicality, like this is unique to Christianity, that God's first thing is to speak physicality into being. And his son becomes physical, <laughs> Like he takes on a physical body. He has a physical resurrection. It, it, it's a, Christianity is the great dignifier of physicality. And so you, you have flesh and spirit in the great mystery. And there is a day coming when we will be dwelling on the earth. And so it, it, it goes back to Genesis in that that was the original desire of God, that I would have kings, a kingdom of priests, that you will reign like your royalty on the earth as you as you rule it and you know i don't know what's going to need ruling (laughs) but it it says in in revelation that we will be reigning and uh i'm hoping my dog's there i think (laughs) (laughs) that's that's a mystery that's a mystery well let me ask you one more question um i think you know whenever people come to me with questions about what god thinks about women um I, I talk to them a lot about some of the things you're talking about, especially how it is that we even study the Bible. But also I try to point them to how Jesus interacts with women, how he, how he, how he thinks about women, how he interacts with them, how he, um, Good word. How he gives them something to do. And so talk to me about that um, before we go, because I think that's the place that people sort of skip over sometimes, but it's this, the place where we have to stop. Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, just shifting view on your blessed be the breast that suckled you to my sisters and my mother are those who do God's will. So Jesus is dignifying, like he is welcoming us to his family and in a sense, giving us power, not because we want to take power, but he, he is, he's giving us family rights and heirs. Um, the uh, the other reference to to Jesus was you know to Mary who's sitting his, at his feet. He's inviting her to learn theology, and we have to assume it's so that she can share the gospel. Who does he say go and tell to for the first time? Is go tell the disciples uh, that you know Christ is alive. And you think of the of the woman at the well who's running and telling a village. He has definitely given us a task with our brothers to continue to be fruitful and multiply, but not necessarily physically, although it might mean involve that. Uh, but the focus seems much more on making disciples. How can I make disciples? How can I take as many people into the kingdom with me, you know, through the work of the Spirit as possible? And it's too much for our brothers to do alone. They shouldn't try to do it alone. And, and you know, we need to help shoulder the burden side by side with them. So partnership is a big is a big word. I think the fact that Jesus received income from women so that he could preach uh, suggests that it shouldn't be an insult to a man's manhood to receive money from a woman or income from his wife if it makes it possible for him to glorify God, right? Seek ye first the kingdom of God. 
And if, if a couple, uh, if that's how they decide married or not, uh, if they, if they decide, you know, it could be a family member, it could be a sister supporting a brother, right. A, a biological sister, um, what can we do to partner up and, and use our best resources? I think of Jesus when he's talking to the woman at the well, and it says the disciples did not understand why he's talking to a woman. So even after they have been with him long enough that he's, you know, he's on his way through Samaria, they don't get that Jesus has a different vision for women than they have. And so he is really pretty much out there on his own, <laughs> you know, sort of establishing, he doesn't, Dorothy Sayers has a beautiful quote about, you know, that maybe that's why they were last at the tomb, you know, last of the cross first. Anyway, first of the tomb, last of the cross, like nobody had ever treated him like this. He had serious conversations with them. He didn't make them the butts of jokes. He didn't say the women, God helped them or the little women, God blessed them. Like he took them very seriously uh, he involved them in his mission. He received from them. Um, one of my favorite, uh, nobody's ever made a t-shirt, but I wish they would, is is when Jesus said, leave her alone. Like he is, he is receiving worship from a woman and they're like, stop, stop, stop. You know, she should not criticize, criticize, criticize what she's doing. And he's like, leave her alone. She's done, not only has she done a beautiful thing for me, but everywhere the gospels preach, it's going to be talked about. <laughs> Right. Like talk about dignifying what she is doing. Yeah. That's amazing. It is like, why is not leave her alone? One of the most well-known quotes of Jesus. Again, not because we have it against our brother. It's brothers and sisters alike who sometimes tell us hold back from following Jesus instead of, Hey, I live once and I'm going to live, spend my life for him. Well, I actually wish we had another 40 minutes, but I think that's a great place to stop. Just just for brothers and sisters both, just everything I have, just I'm going to live my life for Jesus and, and leave us alone. And we'll just do that in partnership. I think that's so beautiful. And that's the hope. Thank you so much for being here today. This was really helpful, really great. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to today. I'm so grateful that all of you were here. I will link to resources from Dr. Glan with this episode at clearcreekresources.org, where you can also find articles, music, videos, and more. Again, I'm Rachel. Thanks for listening.